0: Hello, Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. I started off with the traditional links I liked. Um, And uh, non-COVID stuff is starting to creep back into the blog. It wasn't really by design, but um, it's just happening. Um, And links I liked had a couple of crackers. Um, One is um, a story in The Guardian about... um, American interference US interference in Latin America um we we saw recently a, a, an extraordinarily inept attempt at an invasion and uh kidnapping by some rather pathetic mercenaries but uh, the guardian had a story about the uh, US National Endowment for Democracy funding an anti-Chávez rock bands uh, a, a, set, a series of anti-Chávez rock bands in uh, Venezuela and also USAID Um, putting money into the uh, underground cuban hip-hop scene and apart from obviously not achieving very much i just wondered how did the project documents look how was what were the indicators and the mail system for funding underground hip-hop quite fascinating i think we should know more while we're on the topic of usaid um, a truly alarming someone pointed out a truly alarming change of mission statement So the USAID mission statement on its Twitter feed used to be USAID works to end extreme global poverty and enable resilient democratic societies to realise their potential. Not bad. I'm sure you could quibble with bits of that, but that's not a bad mission statement. You go on the USAID Twitter now, and I did because I didn't believe it uh, when I first read it, and it does indeed say USAID, we advance US national security and economic prosperity demonstrate american generosity and promote self-reliance and resilience how depressing is that that just feeds into every conspiracy theory about um aid being a nasty colonial plot and they just basically said yep that's that's how it works great good work guys Second post uh, this week was um, the next up in a new series of podcasts called Power in the Pandemic, which Maria Faciolinse, and my colleague on, on the blog has, has been uh, running. And this one's on food, farming and coronavirus in the Philippines. Uh, focus on Doy Ampilan from Mindanao, who's a farmer working with an organic farming cooperative and looking at how coronavirus and COVID-19 has affected their work. Um, I've read a couple of things about the COVID crackdown, disrupting big modern supply chains, uh, those ones that are very extended over large distances, and, and actually helping a relocalization of food production. So it'll be interesting to see if that's one of the longer term uh, impacts of the, of, of the crisis. Third, uh, the next piece, which I think was <clears throat> my favourite for the week, was uh, I reposted something by George Kibala Bauer, who's a Ghanaian Congolese writer, um, who sorry, he's a German Congolese writer, I beg your pardon, um, who uh, had a post on Africa is a country. If you don't know Africa is a country, check it out. It's a great blog and has some fantastic stuff. And uh, Kibala Bauer wrote something called Beyond the Western Gaze, How Should We Talk About COVID and Africa? Um, and he argues that basically, if you're an African writer, you're caught between you know these kind of Western tropes about Africa as... Uh, terrible and going down the tubes, or Africa is fantastic and rising, sort of pessimism and euphoria. And reality, of course, is a much more complex mix of the two. So I'll read a couple of quotes from Kabbalah from Bauer's piece, which I just thought was great. First quote, hopeless continent, Africa rising, Afro-optimism or Afro-pessimism. These binary meta-narratives are ultimately two sides of the same coin and they're equally useless. It's like when people post pictures of skyscrapers in Nairobi in response to Westerners reducing African countries to slums. Like, yeah, I've engaged in these responses as well, but the slums still exist. And then just as a sort of throwaway paragraph, he delivered this extraordinary kicking to the United Kingdom, which I just think is worth quoting. Rejoicing that African countries are outperforming countries like the United Kingdom in their COVID response is the definition of claiming easy victories grounded in low ambition. Almost every country's response looks favourable vis-a-vis the UK. Why should a nation in rapid decline, dealing with a toxic combination of regional inequality, empire nostalgia, media polarisation and nepotism, be a standard for African countries? Wow, so that's what the African gaze looks like uh, when it comes a bit closer to home. And I found that really, really interesting and beautifully written. Absolutely. Just, just read it for the writing alone. It's just fantastic. We continue the decolonization theme the next day with a piece by Carmen Leon Himmelstein and Melanie Pine from the Overseas Development Institute here in London. And their piece was, How can coronavirus, COVID-19, be the catalyst to decolonize development research? because development research is horribly colonial you know you um power money and control lie firmly with northern researchers northern research institutions northern funders and that affects everything about the way research is done in developing countries it affects the topics it affects the design the way the research is carried out the way the way the research is disseminated who gets access to the data once the research is published so uh Himmelstein and uh, Pinay say that, yeah, there's an enormous amount that needs to change, but they come up with a very good list of some of the things. So researchers in the North have to reflect constantly on their positionality and privilege and rethink the kind of research relationships they build with partners in, in universities, researchers, think tanks in the Global South. And they have to enable the researchers from the Global South to set the agenda to rethink this whole awful concept of capacity building, which is based, which is in in research terms, is often reduced to northern researchers giving workshops on um, you know, particular techniques, particular uh, methodologies to southern researchers who are supposed to be deeply grateful for this. When actually, northern researchers are having their capacity built all the time by the southern researchers who are usually called research assistants or data collectors um, who are actually introducing them to the reality of politics the anthropology the life the power struggles the reality of life in the countries where they're um, uh, where they're researching so who is building whose capacity that needs to change communications need to change so making communications more relevant and useful in the countries rather than just have a sort of extractive approach and then communicating to your peers in the north And finally, making the data sets, the raw material available to local users, whether they're researchers or leaders, and taking your logo off it so people can actually use it. Really nice piece uh, by uh, Carmen Leon Himmelstein and Melanie Pino there. And finally, we had thinking and working politically with technology uh, by two people at the Asia Foundation, which I think is a really interesting organisation. And this was Gopathampi and Nicola Nixon sent this in, Um, and their basic question is: Why is this data revolution not leading to a real revolution? Why? What is holding the, the transformative potential of the data revolution back in terms of its impact on society, real life? And they think one reason is that it is not thinking and working politically. That the data, the, the, the data for development work, is not is ignoring local political dynamics. And they they say that in order to understand those political dynamics, you have to be somewhere for a long time. So they base their article on uh, the asia foundation 's work in Sri Lanka, where for the last fifteen years it 's been working on local government governance programs with local government officials with local government um, elected uh, elected leaders mayors, all sorts and uh, they've they 've been learning painfully, learning by failing, learning by doing. Um, what works and what doesn't, and how you adapt your data intervention to local political context. And there have three key reflections, which I thought were really interesting. One was prepare for delayed resistance. Delayed resistance. Really nice concepts, new to me. Um, because what happens is you come and you say, look, I've got all these great new toys. I've got these new tablets. Do you want to take the tablets? And of course, local officials say, yes, great. We like new, you know, we can brag about how we brought in all this new kit and it'll make us look good with the voters or with our bosses all fine but then when the new tech arrives actually it starts to get a bit uncomfortable because it starts shining lights on where the money's going where the power is going where the money is disappearing and suddenly you get a delayed oh hold on a minute actually we don't like this anymore and you get a delayed resistance to introducing the technology which I uh, fascinating understanding the micro-institutional politics. And in particular, if you introduce something like technology, new technology, the people who are going to grab it and use it and make the most of it are young people. They're the people who are going to be tech-savvy, digital natives. They're going to grab this stuff and use it. But in the pecking order, they're usually at the bottom. So their bosses are going to be quite easily have their noses put out of joint, get pissed off because suddenly they're being made to look stupid and these young people with their new tech are uh, uh, are leading the way. So you'll get another form of delayed resistance, which is generational, which I think is really interesting. You know, I'm pretty old and I certainly spend a lot of time going, clicktivism, don't do much of that. And I suppose I'm doing the same thing. And But this is more sort of serious in that it's actually holding back the, the potential of some of these new technologies. Um. And finally, when you introduce new technology, you're going to learn that it's not quite right for that particular political context, for the political, for the language people use, for the problems which people self-identify. You know what they actually think needs fixing. So you're going to have to have a rapid cycle of adaptation and feedback in order to make it relevant to the context, and you have to do that, you know, fast. So I thought really good piece on the the, the, the politics of tech for development, and that ends this week's. Uh, posts um i had hoped to be heading for the hammock this weekend because i've finally finished my lse marking sadly the weather is broken and it's freezing cold so i'm gonna to have to find something else to do but never mind have a great weekend stay warm stay safe talk to you next week bye